Hi, I'm Liana, and I'll be doing the Bible reading tonight. Um, tonight's Bible reading comes from Haggai chapter 2, verse 1 to 9. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its forming, former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, and high priest. Be strong, all you young people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations, and the desired of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. How about now? God's good. I don't know if you remember last week. Last week we looked at Haggai chapter 1. We spent, um, it's the second week that we had spent on Haggai. Firstly, we did an overview and looked at the fact that the people to whom Haggai is talking to are not wicked sinners. They're people, hopefully like us, people who love the Lord, who followed the Lord, who wanted to follow his word, who wanted to worship properly, who didn't want to be a part of the world out there. In terms of following the way they did things, they wanted to serve the Lord. But because of persecution and because of things that were happening in their life, they got, they got distracted. And last week we looked in Haggai chapter 1 where the prophet Haggai comes to the people and say, why do you keep putting off following the Lord? Don't you know that God does not want to be a part of your life? He does not want to be an aspect of your life. God wants you to be his servants and he wants to be all of your life. God desires that you as his people don't just serve him some of the time. He called you to serve him as his people all of the time. And he's called you to, to build his house. He's called you to, to finish the work that you've started. We looked at how that applies to us in so many ways. At the end of Haggai chapter 1, the people turned, they, they obeyed the Lord. On the 24th day of the sixth month, they came to work on the house of the Lord. They said, okay, we are going to serve 
God. And that was an encouragement to us because when they did that, God said, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to put my spirit with you in you because the spirit of God was stirring up in their hearts to, to bring them to live for him. Haggai chapter 2 is one month later. How long does it take for people fired up by God because of the pressures of the world, because of the circumstances of life, to slow down, to, to lose sight of what's going on. Um, I, I don't know about you, but at the end of last week, I'm thinking, I was a bit pumped, I must admit, thinking, yes, let's, let's go, let's live for Jesus throughout the whole week. Let's, let, let's go and tell our friends about Christ. How, how come we is, are satisfied with so few people coming in amongst us as new believers? Why are we so satisfied with a life of mediocrity? Let's get out there. But I live in a real world, is my excuse. I kind of think to myself, and I'm not sure if this is you, but as I talk to people, as I listen, as I see people, and I listen to people, we come up with, with phrases to explain why the passion and the reality of what God says isn't coming about or, or doesn't need to be worked on so much because there's really good reasons for it not to. We, we can think up stuff. You see, we, we, we live in a world where it's difficult to see the gospel being brought into the community, where it's difficult to go and to talk with people. I, I was in the city last night. And you go up to talk to people about Jesus and they walk away. And they're uninterested. You walk up to talk to people and you want to share the good news with them and they're apathetic or they're antagonistic towards you. You go to your friends. We've just had the, the welcome here to, to invite us to bring our friends and our family and the people in the community to come to the Christmas carols, an opportunity they might come into the hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They might see Christ. They might see the community of Christ. And hopefully you're pumped up about that. And you say, yes, I'm going to go and do that, right? But the reality hits home when we go to do that we know that we live in a world where when we ask people, they're going to say no. And often, sometimes it seems to me, you know, I'm one of these preachers, we, we, they seem to live in their ivory towers. They put this stuff out there and say, Christians are supposed to live like this. And we all go, yes, but I could see that last week, Sunday night. No offense, I'm not going to point at anybody. You could see people saying yes, and then you could see their face saying but. Not now. Don't you know what's going on in my life? Don't you see the things that are happening? And reality begins to hit home with us. I think that's one of the reasons that God, in, in designing the Lord's Supper, actually intends us to do it as often as we meet together. Because he knows that we're really thick. And that we allow the outside, what we consider reality of the world, to swamp us so that we fail to be obedient 
Because we get afraid or we, we look at what's out there in the pressures of the world and we say, it's difficult. You just have to listen to the way Christians talk when you ask them to share the gospel or you ask them to be involved in ministry. They say things like, it's in the Lord's timing. It's a really nice thing to say. It basically means not now. Or we live in a day when God works in small ways. I've heard people say that. Or they say, God, God will use the best that we give him, even if it's not very good. In other words, we try and work out a whole lot of reasons living in the real world that we do, why we don't see or can't see or can't live or can't be the people that God calls us to be. That's the situation that these people find themselves in. One month later, God has to come to them and say, hold on a second. Don't think when I called you to do this that I don't understand the reality of the world which you live in. I understand. I understand the reality of that which I've called you to do. I'm totally aware of what's going on in your life. We'll look at that in a minute. That's the first point I want to do. God understands the reality of the world in which we live, and yet he has called us to live and to act within it. So every time we step back and say, but God, I live in this world. Don't you understand? People around me are sinful. Even the Christians are sometimes sinful. And, I, and, and the culture around me makes it difficult for me. We learn as God is talking to these people, he says, yeah, I know that. You think I've called you to do something, to act in a way that is totally unreal? You think it's an ivory palace type scenario? And I'm just setting you up there, this, this pinnacle to aim for that can't ever be achieved? He says, no, I know the reality of the world in which you live. I know what's going on there. I'm aware of that. And the second thing when you get to God says, and I'm dealing with that. I'll deal with the reality of the world in which you live. And in the end of this passage, we're going to see that God actually says, not only am I going to deal with the reality in which you live, the promises that I'm going to give you are going to go so far beyond what you can even imagine because the reality that I have in place is far more real than the reality that you can see. I know the reality of where you are and I'll deal with that. But what I promise you is so much greater than that because what I can see and what I am doing is more than you can possibly even begin to comprehend. So let's have a quick look at this passage. And he says, in the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, one month after these people had gone out in the spirit of the Lord, coming together to do work on the house of God, the word of the Lord comes again to the prophet Haggai. And he says, speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedak, the high priest, and to the remnants of the people. Ask them, who of you has left you, saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? He says, I understand all the reasons and the things, the fears that are going on in your heart, in your mind. I can see you when you look out at this and you say, we are never going to get this place to work. 
We don't have enough money, we don't have enough goods, we're living in a recession, there's a drought on at this period of time, we don't have enough people and we've got opposition from outside. And just look at the place. We're never going to be able to make it look like it's supposed to go. Just to give you a little bit more of an understanding of this, if you jump over to Ezra, I'll read it for you, because I'm fascinating. Ezra is about the same time as this, and there's events going on here that are in the people's minds as God is talking to them. Ezra chapter 5 says this, Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God and the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, and Joshua, son of Jozadak, set to work to rebuild the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. But then what happened? What's causing a whole lot of this fuss in the minds of the people? At that time, Tatnai, governor of the trans-Euphrates, and Shezab Bozani and their associates went to them and said, who authorized you to rebuild the temple and finish it? Who said you could start this work again? Who do you think you are? And they said, what are the names of those people who are constructing this building? Now, if you really want to get the wind up people, ask them who the people responsible are. Because then they focus in on names and that really causes fear in people's minds. So these people who wanted to follow God even in this very short time have got doubts about what they're doing because they don't think they can complete it, but they're getting this opposition that's coming to them. But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. What does that say? It's in the same scenario. God's watching. God understands. God knows what's going on. He's called them to do a task, but he doesn't step back. He's aware of the reality in which people live. And he wants them, we're going to learn from Haggai, he wants them to understand what he's asked them to do in his strength they can do. God doesn't ask us to do stuff we can't. He doesn't promise stuff that's not going to be brought about. He's aware of of the world in which we live because it's his world. He knows the things that are going through their mind when they look at the work that's to be done and the, the doubts that they have. And he knows what's going on because he's watching everything with the outside pressures. He's aware of what's going on. Don't, don't think your excuses to him catch him by surprise. And he says, wow, I never realized it was so hard. I probably would have taken a step back and not ask you to live a holy life and to go and share the gospel and to be a community who love one another if I knew how difficult it was going to be. I would have taken a more realistic approach and said, look, share with as many people as you can, but don't go too far. And be as holy as you can, but don't be a holy roller where everyone's going to look at you and say, hey, there's something wrong with you. And when it talks about loving and living in as a community, I meant as much as you can when you live in a multicultural society and live in different houses and long way from one another. I understand now, God's not like that. He says, I'm aware perfectly of what I've asked you to do. Going back to Ezra. This is a copy of the letter that Tatnai, governor of the Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozani and their associates, the officials of Trans-Euphrates, sent to King Darius. And the report they sent him read as follows. To King Darius, cordial greetings. 
The king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls. The work has been carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. We questioned the elders and asked them, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and finish it? We also asked them their names so that we could write down the names of the leaders for your information. I don't know, this is been aside. So if you bring up Telstra and they won't answer you, they won't give you what you want, say, excuse me, I'd like to know your name and your reference number. You get good service. Right? That's what they're doing here. They're saying we asked the name of the people who were there. This is the answer they gave us. We are the servants of God of heaven and earth, and we're rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our ancestors angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people of Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, brought to the temple in Babylon. Then King Cyrus gave them to a man named Sheshbazzar, whom he appointed governor, and he told them, take these articles and go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God on this site. So this Sheshbazzar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. From that day to the present, it's been under construction, but it is not finished. Now, if it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did in fact issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send us his decision in this matter. So God's aware. He knows what's going on. He's aware of the situation in which they find themselves. And what does he say to them? Verse 4. But now, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, and work. Why? For the thing that you've forgotten when you've looked at the reality of everything out there which is opposing your ability to go and to do these things is, I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. And through the rest of these few verses, he says, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, this is what I covenanted with you when I came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. I am the Lord Almighty. And you read in verse 6, Lord Almighty, verse 7, Lord Almighty, verse 8, Lord Almighty, verse 9, the Lord Almighty twice. God is saying, I understand the reality in which you are. I understand your fears, but I'm telling you, I'm with you. My spirit is with you, so be strong. Be strong. Do not fear. This is an encouragement like last week. He's saying, last time you said it's not yet time. You were trying to put things off. But now you've got the situation. You're beginning to work and you say, we can't do it. It's not going to work. There's so many things happening around me. You're looking at that sort of stuff and you're looking it out without this overarching idea that should be in your mind that God Almighty is with you. That his spirit is working within you. I don't know, but I can see on some faces you're saying, but that's nice to say. That's nice to say. But there's still the reality that we're going through all these difficulties. And that's why I think we have this passage in Haggai to give us an example if we can't think of ones in our own life. 
when we see the hand of God at work, where he, he deals with their situation. Listen. Listen what happened when King Darius wrote back to them. He says this. Chapter 6. King Darius then issued an order, and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury at Babylon. The scroll was found in the citadel of Ecbatana in the province of Media, and this was written on it. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices and let its foundations be laid. It is to be 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide with three courses of large stones and one of timbers. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. Also the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, are to be returned to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. They are to be deposited in the house of God. And then he says, now then, Tatnai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shetha, Bozanai, and you other officials of the province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work of this temple of God. Let the governors of Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. So he deals with the opposition that's against them. But then what's their other complaint? Their other complaint is it's never going to look that good because we're poor and we're... We just don't have the facilities to do this. God deals with the opposition, then he says this. Moreover, verse 8, I hereby decree that you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of the house of God, what you are to do. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of the trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Not only, whatever is needed, Young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, must be given them daily without fail, so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. He says, not only are you to leave them alone, but I want you out of your taxes what you raise, to give them everything they need. I want you to pay for it. Not only that, I want you to pay for the sacrifices that they bring to the God of heaven, whatever it is, so that what happens in that place of God is what he wants to have happen. He says it comes out of the treasury without fail. And here's the bit that's a bit gross, but anyways. He says, furthermore, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, if any of you say, yeah, that's really cool, but a beam is to be pulled from their house and they're to be impaled on it. And for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of manure. May God, who has caused his name to be dwelled there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. He says, if they argue, pull one of the rafters out of the house, stick it in the ground, grab them by the arms and legs, shove them on it, and cover it up with poop. So that everybody knows you don't do this to the decree that I've issued. Because God in heaven will take away any king who 
who does this. Well, we can just look back at the story of Daniel to know why the kings understood that. But what do we learn from that? We learn that God can do anything. And the reality of the world is we look at it and say, I can't share my faith. Churches in this country only grow at this rate because that's the culture and what we live. We can't expect God to do such a miracle. Talking with someone before the service. They had a medical condition. They were feeling unwell. What do you do? Well, you pray with them. You ask God to heal. That's what you do because that's what God calls his people to do. We just get so tied up with the issues that are out there. We say the world in which we live is different. God doesn't get it. And then he says to these people, I can deal with any of the reality that you think you're going through. When I was teaching as a chaplain up on the north coast, we were going through um, Matthew's gospel, we were going through the Sermon on the Mount. And there was a complaint made because as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, on the bottom of one of the sheets I had put the words of Christ when he, he talks about the fact of, of divorce and how God is against divorce. And there was a complaint made to the school about this thing being in there. I was called aside by the Christian principal and the Christian chairman of the board who was also a leader of the denomination in the state. And they said, you don't understand the reality of the world in which we live. You can't say things like this. You can't write words like this on something that you give out to kids. And I said, they're not my words. <laughs> I was a, a Control-C, Control-V. It was a, a copy and paste from Matthew's Gospel. I just put it there because we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. And they said, well, don't. Leave it out. You don't understand the trouble will get in if you keep putting it in. I said, I don't know that I can do that. <laughs> I said, but what I will do is next year we won't do the Sermon on the Mount. We'll do another passage so that you don't have to have the problem. Oh, you know, fair. I thought that was a great compromise. They said, no, we want you to do the Sermon on the Mount, but leave that out. I said, I'm not sure I can, you know, because we're going to do the sermon on that. It's part of God's word. How do you leave parts of God's word out? And they said, you don't understand the trouble we get in. I said, well, I said, well, do you want me to talk to the person who's made the complaint? And they said, yes, please. So the guy walks in to my office, dressed up. He's a lawyer or something. Beautiful tie, nice suit, and angry as. And he sits and he said, I don't know how you, you could write this sort of stuff. I said, mm. I said, you're divorced, aren't you? He says, yes, but I have no idea what that's got to do with it. I said, well, the previous week, I wrote something about being murderers, and you didn't complain at all. So I assume you haven't killed anybody lately. So my assumption is that this, this just tr triggered something with you. He goes, yes, I think it's totally inappropriate. And then I said, I didn't write that. I said, that's just cut and paste out of the world. Jesus said that. And I opened my Bible and I showed it to him. And he looks at me, someone who, who's not a believer, who doesn't know God. 
And he says, well, that's all right then. He said, if Jesus said it, I can see no reason why I could ask you not to put it in. He said, fair enough. We talked for a little bit and then he left. God understands the reality of the situation. His word is more than capable of dealing with any sort of situation. That's only a small thing. We get so tied up. And we begin to doubt that God, the Lord Almighty, can do that and work amongst us that which he has promised to do. God knows the reality of what we face, but God also deals with the reality of what we're facing. And then if we go a little bit further, verse 6 in this speech of Haggai's, this is what the Lord Almighty says, in a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and dry land. I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come and I will fill this house with my glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. These people were worried about the house that they were going to be able to build for God. And they said it's not big enough. It's not good enough. There's too much persecution. We're never going to get it done. And God comes and says, I understand that. But what you need to understand is I'm with you. What you need to understand is this is my world. I understand everything that's going on, but I'm the Lord Almighty, says God. I can do it. And then he says, not only that, but I'm going to change it in such a way that just blows your mind. And most people would recognize that this later part of what he's talking about here is looking forward. It's looking forward probably into the, not only the time which we live, when God's glory actually dwells amongst us in a way which is far greater because we have peace in Christ Jesus. But he's looking forward to that time when his house in heaven is going to be far beyond anything we can possibly imagine. What has he done? He's come and he's changed the whole reality of things. Why is it that people don't understand the gospel? Because what God has done is so far beyond what we can understand until his spirit does a work in our heart. We, we don't recognize what God can and will do in people. It's his work totally. And it's an amazing work that he does. And what he says to these people is, you know, I shake the heavens and the earth. The silver and gold is mine. There's absolutely nothing that's out there that is not within my hands to control. All I want you to do is work and be strong. Work and be strong. Don't take the step backwards. Don't let that which is out there distract you from the fact that I am your God and I want you to do my work. How I tell you to, when I tell you to do it, where I tell you to do it, with whom I send you. That's what I want. I'll bring it all about. The consequences are in my hands. All you have to do, be strong, recognize I'm with you and that I'm God. And then what's going to happen will blow your mind. I encourage you. If you don't know this God... What he's talking about at the end here in this passage 
is the fact that the temple that he's promised is that he will actually not just be in a temple made of gold that is in Jerusalem, but he's promised that he will come and dwell amongst us. God's spirit will come and live in your heart, change you, stir you up, help you to be all that he's made you to be. That as we come to know Christ, our sins are forgiven. And that we can live as his servants and that one day we'll be in that fantastic place of worshipping him in heaven. That's what he promises us. If you don't know that, that's what he's saying. He says that is absolutely greater than anything you can possibly imagine. The reality of knowing Jesus is far more than the reality in which you live now. I don't know how many people I talk to and they say, but God can't love me that way or God can't do that for me. What God is promising is my world. I can. I can have a relationship with you. I can live within your heart. I can forgive your sin. I can lead you to be with me forever. I can put you into a community of people that loves you. God promises that. So if you don't yet know him, I encourage you, please talk with the people around you. But for most people here, that's not your experience. Most people here, you do seek to follow God. You want to obey his word. You want to worship him in truth. You don't want the world to crowd out following Jesus. And there are times when you get motivated to, to let Jesus have all of your life. He, where you say you're not just going to be a part, you're going to be everything. But then what we understand of reality sets in. I don't know about you, but many of you have been Christians for years. And you've allowed the, the world out there to define for you what can and can't happen. You've allowed the world out there to define for you what's possible and what's not possible, to define for you what's good and what's not good, to define for you where you can and can't go. And you've taken off what you consider rose-coloured glasses to be more real. And, and God here in this passage says to them, put those glasses back on because those glasses aren't rose-coloured glasses. Those glasses are ones where I am the centre of the world, the centre of your world. Where I'm the one who can do all things. That's how I expect you to see the world, because I'm with you. So look at the world that way. Look at the world that I can do all things, and then go and do what I've called you to do. And then see what God does. I don't know if you've ever gone for a period of time just living for Jesus. Most of us get tired after a week. We get tired after a few days. What he says to the people here is, no, don't get tired. I understand you're afraid. I understand what's going on, but I'm with you. Be strong. Work. And see what I will do amongst you. My challenge to you is I think that most of us have never seen what God will do amongst us because we've never worked hard for an extended period of time. We've always allowed things to drag us away. What was the benefit for me of being in Ethiopia and being in the Sudan? The benefit of being in Sudan is that it was totally outside my comfort zone. It was in a reality which was different from what I was used to. Going on the mission field was an insight into seeing the world God's way because you had to. You didn't have water, you didn't have food, you did have bombs, you did get shot at. 
And that changed your whole sense of reality so that when you got up in the morning and you had food, you said, God, thank you so much for food. Because it was food. Because there were some days when there wasn't. And when you got in the car, you said, God, please keep me safe on the way to work today. Because you weren't sure that you would be safe. Because there were days when you'd have stones thrown at you. And there were days when there would be riots. And there were the bomb people who had bombs put under their car. So when you got to work, you said, God, thank you so much for keeping me safe today. I really appreciate it. It was just a different life. And yet, I think of Thomas. When Thomas saw him with the hands and said, my Lord and my God, and Jesus said, blessed are those who can do this without seeing me. Blessed are those who have confidence in me because they've heard, if you like. Who don't need that to get a grasp of that I am their Lord and God. So you might not have an opportunity to step outside of the reality of living in this culture to be able to see of how amazing it is when you can depend on God. But I encourage you, take a step back and see this as God's world and see what he can do in your life. For an extended period of time, walking with him, reading the word, talking with one another, praying with one another, sharing your faith, being dependent upon God at every single moment of your day. And God will do that which he promises. And you will see him do amazing things in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we read so much in the word that we as your children are supposed to live in a particular way. We're to be holy people, your people. We're not to lust, we're not to get angry. We're to use our talents and our money for you. We're supposed to share our faith. We live in such a way that the world looks at us and says, wow, that's amazing. And yet often when we look at the world, we, we fail to see you as the Lord of all. We, we, we don't think sometimes that you even understand what it's like in this modern world. With the internet and science. And yet, Lord, you know all things. And you watch us as we meander through our days. We've made a promise to you as your followers that we will follow you as our Lord and Saviour. Father, keep us faithful to that promise. Help that vow that we've made to serve you be something which is an integral, important part of our lives. That we will focus on you throughout this next week, throughout this next month, throughout this next year. That we'll be strong. We won't let the fears of outside weigh us down. But that we'll live for Jesus. Father, you've promised that when your word goes out and when your people lift Christ up, that he will draw all men to himself. We know that your promises are good and we know that you have promised to build your church. And we pray that you might do it amongst us as we live strongly in your presence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand together and sing our final song.